If you would, take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I'm overwhelmed by God's kindness to us this morning. We, we are low in attendance uh, today. It is that weekend. Uh, where folks have other things that they have going on, vacations, the start of summer. Uh, but there was a day when Clay and I were worried it was going to just be me and him on this Sunday. Uh, we were going to have Bible study together. Uh, but uh, God is so kind to us as we look around this room uh, and we say this is a low day for us now. And uh, so thankful for what God is doing uh, in the life of our church, the way he is growing us, not just numerically, but spiritually. Uh, as the pastor here, I get to look around every week and hear and see all that God is doing uh, in our lives. Folks who are struggling, uh, folks who are in uh, very, uh, times of their life where things are exciting, and uh, folks who are clinging to Jesus through it all. And I, I, again, I'm just overwhelmed what God is doing uh, in the life of our church. Uh, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 20. Uh, we continue to move through the book of Acts. Uh, it's hard to believe we're already in chapter 20. I think we began this at the first of the year, uh, and we're in chapter 20. Just, uh, I think, eight, nine more sermons left. Um, but it has been such a pleasure to move through this book and think about how the gospel has moved from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We are a part of the story right now. This witness, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus who died for sins, raised up from the grave by God himself, seated at the right hand of God. This message has echoed and reverberated and has rippled all the way to Richmond, Kentucky, and we are seated with Bibles in our hands declaring Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, because Jesus never stopped acting. He continued to act from Jerusalem to Richmond. And we stand in reverence to his word at this time, Acts chapter 20. I'm going to just read verse 24 and then begin our time uh, together as we move through this chapter. Hear the word of Christ to us. This verse here, verse 24, is the center of this book or of this chapter. It is, the, it, it is what makes sense of the rest of all, all the rest of what Paul is saying here. Hear the word of Christ through the pen, through the voice of Paul. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Oh God, I pray as we read those words, it, it would shake us up. We would evaluate the way that we think about our life, the way that we think about the things of our life. God, would we put them on the scales and ask, what is this worth to me? We would ask, what is Jesus worth to me? What is the gospel worth to me? What is the mission worth to me? And God, we would evaluate our hearts. What do we value? What do we treasure? And God, I pray by the power of your spirit 
we would walk away treasuring, valuing, clinging to Christ and the gospel over and above anything else in our life. God, do a mighty work here today. God, transform us as a mission-sending force in the world. God, make us into um, missionaries who go out into Richmond with the gospel, pleading with folks to bow before King Jesus. God, do amazing things in and through us, not so that we would say, look what we're doing, but even as we sung earlier, all glory be to Christ. God, Jesus is our treasure and we want to be used by him. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let me see it. The gringos are lazy. Now, these are words from a villager in the village of Cordoba, Peru, which you've heard over and over again where we were involved in planning a church and we're still involved in a work there. But this villager was really upset with our summer missionaries. She looked in upon their lives every day and she basically saw them in her mind doing nothing. She would say, they sleep late. Now, in Cordova, sleeping late is getting up at 7 a.m. And that's what time they were getting up. They sleep late and they don't do anything all day but sit around the village. Now, that's what we told them to do at first. We told them to go into the village and share the gospel with as many people as they could. And so they were in homes and they were in stores and they were in schools. And, and, and their whole focus was to get the message of the gospel out. And they are sharing the gospel over and over. But in her mind, they were doing nothing all day. They do not work. The gringos are lazy. And as we talked to her, we realized... In this village, work was central. It was the focus. It was what you do. It was the culture. There was a culture of work that went on in this village. And our summer missionaries were not a part of what was going on in that culture. They weren't working. And so we realized it was an obstacle to the gospel. And so what did we do? We began scheduling work for our summer missionaries. Now, the summer missionaries who were on the ground at the time, they didn't enjoy that change of plan. They didn't enjoy that sudden, all of a sudden you're telling me that I have to get up at 5 a.m.? Yes, you have to get up at 5 a.m. You have to find a farmer in the village that you're going to spend the whole day with and you're going to work with them. Now, in the Andes Mountains, what that means is you leave your village and you literally hike miles and miles to other places around the Andes Mountains where there are cattle, where your goats and cows are, and you move them from place to place, the top of this mountain, and you build fences. Now, there was no Lowe's, no Home Depot. It's just fences out of trees and rocks and anything that you can find. And so you walk miles in the Andes Mountains, 9,000 feet above sea level. You can hardly breathe just walking down the street just, just a, a few seconds. And here you are hiking through the mountains, moving cattle, building fences, working with the Cordovians. But here's the catch. Once you get out into the middle of nowhere with this farmer, 
and you have worked all day long with them. Now you get to talk about Jesus every day, and they can't go anywhere. <laughs> and so you sit and you watch their cows and you watch their goats, but you have to work for that opportunity to share Jesus. And our sales pitch to our college students, it was, hey, go spend your summer in the Andes Mountains. You get to hike. You get to see this glorious scenery. And all of a sudden, we're saying to our college students, hey, don't go to the beach this summer. Don't, don't take summer off. Go on a mission trip. What am I going to do? You're going to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. And you're going to be miserable every day, physically, but you get to tell these folks about Jesus. And it transformed the way that we thought about our mission there. Actually, many began to come to faith in Christ. And the church there grew when we immersed ourselves into this culture of work. And, and we realized this, that, that taking up your cross for the mission of Christ is more than just physically dying, being willing to die. But so often as missionaries, as Christians in the world, that idea of being willing to die for Christ, it begins to cost us other things if we want to see people believe the gospel, to come to faith in Christ, giving your summer up to work, work, work really hard in the Andes Mountains was hard to do for some of our college students. But they said the gospel is worth it. And, and as we get to chapter 20, this is exactly what is being summed up in Paul's life. We see a man who is willing to die for Jesus, who will die for Jesus. But even in looking at this life of this man, as folks who we look around this room, we're probably not going to be physically persecuted for our faith anytime soon. We, we, we're probably not going to be arrested and we're probably not going to be beheaded. So what does it mean to be willing to not cling to our life for the sake of the gospel? It may mean working really hard so other people believe. It may be dying to things that we value so much. And as we get to chapter 20, this is exactly what Paul begins to communicate to the pastors in Ephesus. As we looked at last week, the city where he has planted a church through preaching the gospel for three years. Paul, as we get to the first part of chapter 20, he is headed westward. He is visiting the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, in Corinth. He is visiting all of those churches. And what is, what is driving him to those churches is he realizes, I will never see you again. I will never see these Christians again. I will never see these pastors again. I will never see these people I love again. And so he moves into these churches to encourage them. During this time, he spends three months in Corinth, and this is where he wrote the book of Romans. And now he's headed back to Jerusalem and he's gathered some representatives from all of these churches and he's headed to Jerusalem to deliver an offering that all of these Gentile churches have collected for the church in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 20, there's this humorous story where he stops in Troas and he sort of has a lock-in. He says, I'm going to preach all day. And he preaches into midnight. And there's a guy that falls asleep and falls out of the church building. And Paul resurrects them. But the point of that story is that he just keeps preaching. 
He goes outside. He literally resurrects this man. He goes back inside, has the Lord's Supper, and keeps preaching through midnight. And Paul is focused on this mission. He is focused on declaring this message. And he is intent to get to Jerusalem and then to Rome and then to Spain. He's so intent to accomplish that, that travel plan that when he says, I want to see the Ephesians one more time, he decides, well, I don't have time. I got to get to Jerusalem and I got to get to Rome. And he says, I'm going to stop at this place, Miletus, and bring just the pastors to me. Because I know when I get to Ephesus, I start visiting people, we'll never be able to leave. So bring them to me. And here in verse 17, Paul is docked at Miletus. And he brings the pastors before him. And he has a shepherd's conference. And what does he say to them? Be willing to die for Jesus and remember the things that I died to when I was among you. First of all, I died to privacy. Notice verse 17. Now in Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The pastors there. These men who he has raised up, his mission team has raised up as leaders in the church. And they came to him and he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Notice, you know how I lived among you. You saw my life firsthand. I wasn't hiding anything from you. I wasn't sweeping in and preaching and moving on. No, I lived among you. You saw my life preaching and teaching, eating meals together, serving, shopping, working together. You saw it all. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You understand that there was opposition all the time. We know the Jews were following Paul from city to city to stamp out the gospel. And he says, you saw that. And you know when I was in Ephesus, it could not have been about me. I wasn't there to make money. I wasn't there to have a name for myself. No, I was in humility. I was there considering you better than myself because after all, I was going through trial, tribulation, physically being persecuted, being hounded as, as my enemies tried to stamp out the gospel. You saw it firsthand. It wasn't about me. All I had was Jesus for myself and all I had was Jesus for you. You saw it up close and personal. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was pro pro profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. You, you saw it all the time. I wasn't cowering because of the persecution. I didn't flinch or move back. No, I stepped in and I said, what do you need? You need the gospel. And I declared to you what was good, what you needed most in public and from house to house. At all times, I was always on for Jesus, and you saw it up close and personal. Notice verse 21, testifying, telling the truth both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the same pattern in Ephesus. He went to the synagogue. He's run out of the synagogue. He goes to the auditorium. He begins to preach to the Gentiles, and then he's moving from house to house, and he says, I was the same guy no matter where with the same message to the Jew 
I was saying, repent and turn to Jesus as your Messiah. To the Gentile, I was saying, put down your idols and turn from your false gods and turn to Jesus. Jesus is better than your ethnic privilege. Jesus is better than your idols. Turn to Jesus at all times. It was about Jesus. You saw it up close and personal. Public, private, same person, same message. And they were able to see it up close and personal. Here is Paul, think about this. He's talking to pastors. And he says, if you want to be a good shepherd, you have to smell like sheep. If they're going to believe your message, they have to see, touch, feel, experience your message. And they do so through you. You live among them. My life as a pastor, like it or not, provides a context for the message that I preach. Like it or not, I have to get over it. I live in a fishbowl. God's called me to live in a fishbowl. I don't bemoan that. You're going to see good, you're going to see bad. And guess what? The same thing goes on with you. Your gospel message and what others see of you has to be more than this pixelated PR campaign that we offer daily, daily on social media. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be real flesh and blood that people see and they believe. The power of the gospel is displayed in the fishbowl of our lives. And if you want to be an effective witness for Jesus, here's the deal. You can't say that's nobody's business anymore. Because number one, it's always Jesus' business. And he's given you a church to hold you accountable to certain things. And number two, if you want to be an effective witness for Jesus, you really want to take off in sharing the gospel, start saying, here's my business. <laughs> and here's Jesus. He's a part of my business. Good, bad, ugly, People should see your sin, they should see your suffering, but most of all, they should see your Savior at all times. That's what this is about. That's what Paul is saying here. We live in a culture where we get home as fast as we can, we run into the garage, we shut the door, and we get in secret as quick as we can. I want some me time. Don't talk to me. Got my headphones in. Don't talk to me. Oh, there's a neighbor. Let me go to the back you're probably an ineffective gospel witness if that's the way you live your life. No, you open it up and you say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I suffer just like you do. There's folks all around you who are going, life is so hard. And you say, yes, life is very hard. I know Jesus. My life is hard. You need to believe in Jesus. Look at how hard my life is. Look at how sinful I am. You need Jesus. Here's the question for us today. If we want to be effective at witnessing for Jesus, are you willing to invite others to know Jesus through knowing you? Schedule this out. When are you opening up your home? And then there's got to be times in your life where it's not scheduled out, where folks know they can just show up and there's going to be laundry everywhere. They're going to hear you as they knock on the door, screaming at your kids every now and then, because you don't know they're there. A C? Really? They're going to hear that. And you're going to open the door and say, A C, and I still love him because Jesus loves him. 
They got to see that. Paul says, you, you know how I lived among you. Your suffering makes the gospel relevant to others. It's not this distant thing that you just check off. Your sin makes the gospel intelligible and concrete. That Your friends know you have flaws. They need to see how you deal with your flaws. Your anger, your frustration, your irritation, even your passivity. They need to see hope of Jesus as you suffer. They need to see grace of Jesus as you sin. Are you willing to die to privacy? to be a better witness for Jesus. Paul also died to coasting. Notice verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Now, Paul, he feels called to Jerusalem to take this offering firsthand. And he, he also wants to be there for Pentecost, but he wants to encourage the church there. And he's so intent on doing it that he says, this, I'm like a prisoner to the Spirit. I can't do anything else. These are my travel plans. I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So get that. We're making travel plans to Jerusalem. I'm going no matter what. And here's the catch. The Spirit tells me all the time, everywhere I am, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned and afflicted. In the next chapter, we're going to see this prophet walks up to Paul and binds his hands and feet and says, this is about what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested and in prison. And Paul says, I don't care. I'm still going to Jerusalem no matter what for the sake of the gospel. And as we know how the story unfolds, he's arrested in Jerusalem. He's arrested on the way to Jerusalem. And then he gets to Rome, which is his ultimate travel plan, to preach the gospel in Rome on a prison ship. And Paul says, yes, I get to get to Rome by the expense of the Roman government. I don't even have to pay for that ticket. I'm going. Yes, that's how I'm getting there. And how does he choose this? Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value. I don't cling to it as precious to myself. What he says here is my life isn't a treasure that I hold on to. No, I don't cling to it in that way. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now Paul says, I'm not clinging to my life because I want to finish my course. What's my course? To get the gospel to the Gentiles, to Rome, to Spain. And the only way I'm going to get there is if I have to let go of my life and be willing to suffer to do it. But I've seen Jesus firsthand. He commissioned me to do this. Even we read in Acts 9 when he is being discipled by Jesus himself in some sense, the Holy Spirit begins to tell him all the things he must suffer. And so we know at this point he knows he's going to suffer. And he says, but if I'm going to finish what God has called me to do, I can't cling to my life. I want to get this message that God saves villains. He saves Gentiles. He saves foreigners, aliens. He sa saves the worst of all because he saved me. And I want to tell that truth to the ends of the earth. Now, in some sense, here in Miletus, this is Paul's retirement party. He's hanging it up in Ephesus. He's hanging it up everywhere else. And he's sailing off into the sunset years of his life. So, Paul, how are you going to finish? 
What are your travel plans? A little cottage by the GNC? Going to fish? Oh, I'm going to jail for Jesus. I'm going to be on a prison ship. That's how I'm going to end it. Paul? No, that's how you're going to end? That's how you're going to finish this course? No coasting? You're not going to coast? He says, no, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory for Jesus. That's how it's going to end. That's Paul's mission. And how does he do it? We say that here today. How do you do that? It sounds pie in the sky, religiosity, fun times for Jesus. That all sounds really spiritual on a prison boat, arrested for Jesus. Yeah, that that sounds comic book-like. How do I get there? Notice what he tells us here. You get there by not clinging to your life as your greatest treasure. That's it. That's the formula. You don't want to coast now. You don't want to coast to the end. Stop clinging to your life as the greatest thing you have and all the things in life as the greatest thing you have. Make sure you understand the greatest thing you've ever experienced, the greatest thing you ever know in this world is Jesus and the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. You have the promise that God is going to bust open your coffin and you're going to rule and reign with Jesus forever. That's the greatest thing you could ever have. That is the greatest treasure you have and nothing else compares to that. And so stop clinging to other things as your greatest treasure. You put it on the scale for Jesus and you say, me time. Me time. No, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And all the time, I did that backwards. It's supposed to go like that. <laughs> and everything that I have, my time, it's no longer me time. It's Jesus time. It's supposed to go like this now. My time isn't for me. It's for Jesus And all that I have to pour in that category is to lift Jesus up. I'm not to cling to it and say, this is about me. My money? My money? I'm going to do it right this time. Jesus is greater. And any money I put over here is for Jesus, and it lifts Jesus up. Everything in life does that. Anything that I have, my life, my breath, anything that I utilize in this world is only a tool to be used for Jesus. What Paul is saying here is our lives aren't this pristine thing that we shine up and we put on a shelf like some valuable little souvenir or token. They're they're not some antique that we put in the garage and we wax on, we wax off, we, we make it look great. We've been watching Karate Kid at my house. And it's shiny and it's spectacular. And we invite our friends over and say, look how marvelous it is. But we never drive it. He says, that's not the way you're supposed to view your life. That's not the way you view your life. No, your life is to be that rugged, run-down, four-wheel drive Chevrolet where you can barely get it to the auto dealer when it's time to trade in. You have to go out to the parking lot and push it in. That's how you're supposed to finish for Jesus. Your life isn't a treasure. It's to be used for the sake of the gospel. And the more you use your life for Jesus, the more it displays the worth of Jesus. And so sometimes, like Paul, you see suffering and you see affliction 
and it's right there in front of you and you say, if I can embrace this suffering, if I can embrace this affliction, it's going to display how, how, how valuable and supreme Jesus is. And so I embrace it even if it means letting go of things in this life that I value. Some of us need to believe that wasting our life Losing our life for Jesus is not a waste. We teach our kids that. We, we, we teach our kids that you can give yourself over to a million other things other than Jesus and still be happy. And then we wonder why they're not happy. Teach them to lose their life for Jesus. Want to be cool? No. Jesus is better. Want to be accepted? No, Jesus is better. Lose your life for Jesus. That's not a waste. Because when you get to the end, the picture Paul paints here is of a runner finishing his course with his hands in the air. Don't you want to finish strong? Don't you want to finish that way for Jesus? Paul dies to coasting. Notice verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul has died to privacy. He's died to coasting. And here he calls these pastors to die for the church. And he says, you're never going to see me again. All you know of me. Here's the point, beginning in verse 25. All you know of me is this message. It's very clear. I've gone about over and over proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus. And now we have the spirit of Jesus that lives among us. And so the kingdom has come in the church, all who believe in Jesus. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Paul says, I have proclaimed the gospel so clearly and so effectively. The expanse of my ministry here is to the point I can say I'm innocent of the blood of all. It's not whether they believe or not, it's whether they've heard. And Paul can say in this city, he's worked hard enough that they all have heard. Verse 27, I do not shrink, I do not cower, I did not cower from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. My message was this, it's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The new, the present, as Paul taught it, is about Jesus. And he said, I never changed the message to avoid conflict. And so he turns to these pastors, verse 28, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock. You know me. You know what I was about. You know this message of the kingdom. Well, now something is about to happen that you need to be aware of as you shepherd the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He, he sets this up here by saying, You have a task, pastors. And... and and the task was set before you in the work of Christ who died for the church. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Now that's what I'm going to call you to do. Lay down your life for the sheep. Notice here, the value of the church in verse 28 is determined by the price paid for it by Jesus. She is a precious possession, treasure to Jesus. And he says, okay, now you need to take care of her, pastors. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He says here, 
The church is a flock. And yet there are wolves coming after the flock. What do wolves do to sheep? They destroy them. And the way the church will be destroyed is even those who look like sheep will turn into wolves and they will draw away sheep so they will get them away from the flock and destroy them and eat them. How will they do it? They will lie to them. They will twist them. And so what do you do in light of that? Verse 31, therefore be alert. Wake up. This is serious to Paul. He sees the threat. He knows the danger. He suffered the physical persecution himself, the angst, the frustration, the anxiety. And he says, I want you to remember for three years, I didn't cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So as these wolves come in, you think about what I was about. You remember the credibility of my message as I preached and I preached and I preached to you the truth about Jesus. Remember that even as he corrected and admonished with tears in his eyes as you see the vicious eyes of these wolves, you remember the eyes of tears. Your shepherd who proclaimed to you the word of the Lord. Don't turn from it. Verse 32 And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul says, God loves you more than I do. You've seen my love for you, but God loves you more. How does he give them over to the love and care of God? He gives them over to the word of his grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. How do you commend the church to God? For his love, for his care, you give them the word of grace, which is able to build up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We, we, we remember in Ephesians 5, this is the very thing that Paul would write this church to this church as he's talking about the way husbands should love their wives. You to love them just like Jesus loved them. He gave his life for them. And he gave his life so they would be set apart to him by the sanctifying work of the word. And he says, that is what you are to do in the life of the church, pastors. You are to give your life over to the church that she loves and adores the word, that she is sanctified and set apart by the word. This is her inheritance. She is a part of this kingdom. She is to live in this kingdom according to the word. Pastors, whatever it takes, give your life over to giving the church the word, even if it takes you takes your life. Now, Paul understands what he's asking these men to do. Think about what all's gone on in Ephesus. Run out of synagogues. Massive confusion and chaos. I want you to go back in there and die that the church would have the word. The word of grace. Notice the word of grace, the way it's phrased there. He's talking about the gospel. As a church, we want to be people that we are so full of the gospel that this word of grace just flows from us constantly. That people know us as a gracious people. That people know us as a merciful people. We want to know this word of grace, be built up in this word of grace where we naturally speak kindness to others. We forgive others. We love others. People people know us as if you're around those people, it could get dangerous because they're never going to go away because they love you. They're committed to you. They're gracious. They're kind to you. He says, I want the church built up in the gospel, the word of grace. But notice how he calls this to be done through shepherds through pastors. He says, I want you to model the good shepherd who laid down his life for the church. This means that any pastor 
who's going to deliver the word of grace must first see the church as a precious possession, blood-bought, not just a stage gimmick, not just a preaching platform. That's why we talk to guys around here who say they're called to ministry. We don't say, then get up and preach. What we want to see, first of all, is do they love you? Do they love you? Do they love the church more than anything else that they're willing to pump waste out of the toilets when they overflow? Why? So we can have clean toilets on Sunday. Now, if you're willing to do that, you love the church because we ain't paying you to do it. And when we start there, what are you willing to do for the church? Why? This is the blood-bought bride of Jesus. That's who she is. This isn't a job. This isn't a career. This isn't a gimmick. This is, this is the bride of Christ. He shed his blood for her. Do you love her? And if you love her, he says here, give her the word of grace. Listen, I know this is your pastor. When you sin, you need the word of grace. You need, the word, you need to believe Jesus still loves you. He's not tolerating you. He's committed to you. So this week when you sin, you have to have in your mind your pastor screaming at you, Jesus still loves you. He still loves you. I want you to see that when you sin on a weekly basis. When you suffer, I want you to have hope in Jesus. I want you to know that the kingdom is greater than anything you're going through. And I may not understand, I may have never gone through it, but I want you to see my face screaming, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater. Trust Him, trust Him, believe in Him. And when you die, I want you to cling to Jesus. As your pastor, I want that more than anything. One of the most sanctifying experiences in my life is being with church members who are dying, clinging to Jesus. Because you know what? I don't cling to Jesus every day. And I'm reminded by their faith in Jesus when it comes to the end that that's all that matters. And I want that for you. I want that for you. I don't want to get up at your funeral and wonder, what am I going to say? He's a jerk. I'm a jerk too. I haven't seen him in years. Those are awkward funerals. I don't want that. I want you to know Jesus is better. And so how does that happen? As a pastor, you give your life over to making sure the church is glutted on the word of grace. Glutted, satisfied, overflowing on the word of grace, and it flows out in the community. You know, there are times as a pastor where I'll say this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I say it to myself. I would rather suffer physical persecution sometimes physical harm for the sake of the gospel than the angst and worry and frustration of what goes on in your life. I want you to know that. Sometimes that's harder than anything that I face as a pastor. You know, there, there's this flip that happens in your life as a pastor sometimes where you go from, is anybody going to show up? What are our numbers like? How's that going and all this? To you go, man, why are they doing that? Why are they making that decision? Where have they been? How is their marriage? How are their kids? And you are racked with work. Think about, you have two or three kids that you worry about. I'm not your father, I'm your pastor. And there is grief for hundreds of people 
on a weekly basis. Are they getting it? Are they believing the gospel? And Paul says here, you have to embrace that kind of suffering. Jesus died gasping for air, suffocated by his own blood. And as a pastor, he says, you step into that and you model that sort of suffering by bearing the weight that they get the gospel. I will suffer the angst, the frustration, the stress, the anxiety to make sure you live out the gospel. That's what God's called us to do. And whether it's me or somebody else standing here one day, if that's not the way they see that role, fire fire me, fire them. Make sure they love the church enough to give the gospel and they're willing to embrace such suffering for the church. We're going to have to move quickly. Verse 33. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You know, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. Paul says, I worked to support my mission endeavor. He was a tent maker. And he worked with his hands to meet his own needs. His ministry needs were not going to get in the way of ministry. And he says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, I died to my rights. I worked hard. So you knew you didn't have to work to get the gospel. I did the work. I paid for it myself. So you would understand as false teachers will come in, you don't pay for the gospel. One of the things that we can apply here is hard work is tangible evidence to the gospel. You have opportunity every day to work hard so others would see grace. Take on extra hours at work for other people. Work a longer shift and don't require anything from it from the other person. I just love you and I want you to experience grace. Some of you are going, that's way out there. Let me move on to verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Now, we've seen a shepherd willing to die for the sheep, a pastor willing to give his life over, someone who's willing to die privacy. He's not coasting. He dies to his rights. And notice how these pastors embrace him as their pastor. He knelt down and he prayed with them, and there was much weeping. The word here is as if someone died. Now, there was no FaceTime, no Skype. They're never going to see this man again, ever see him again. And they're weeping as if someone's dying on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him. When I retire, don't kiss me. But it's uncontrolled affection for their shepherd. We love you. You've given your life for us. You're giving your life for Jesus And they are embracing him with affection. And they are sorrowful because he says they would would never see his face again. And they took him to the ship. And, And this is a beautiful picture of anguish and grief. It's beautiful. The lamenting here is beautiful of anguish and grief. Why? Because they love him. Because they've given their lives for one another on the mission. And so when they're being torn apart by the mission... They weep as if someone is dying. Now, this is a picture we want to see over and over again here. We want to be a church in anguish when we send folks out. You know, I think it's a good thing. We say this a lot. We're we're growing and we need more BFGs. And we say, you've got to leave your BFG and go over here. And everybody gets mad and frustrated. And, oh, my gosh, 
we, we, we started this BFG together and we love each other. And, and I'm okay with that because what if the opposite was going on? Thank the Lord. Could you send some other people to another BFG? But that means that you love one another and you're on mission together. And it's a great and glorious moment even of anguish. But we want more and more of that. We want to send your kids to Zimbabwe. We do. I'll pay for it. And I'll make sure we raise the money here to send your grandkids to Africa. And we'll cry and we'll weep when it happens. But that's where we're headed. If you don't like that, go to a church that doesn't do missions. Be disobedient. Anyway, you'll be happier, I guess. But as a church, you display such love for family members that you've been in the trenches together. You know, I see this also at times of suffering in people's lives in our own church where we show up at funeral homes and when there's tragedy and we're praying for one another and family members turn and say, who are those people? Oh, that's my church. Oh, my word. They've been here the whole time. They mowed your yard. Why did they do that? They're, they're, they're watching your kids for a week at a time while you're up here in the waiting room. Why are they doing that? Oh, because we're family. And, and people stand back and go, wow, that's, that's the kind of love that I want to be a part of. And, and, and it's, it's that bond that is there that is a witness to the culture and to the world. And he says, this is what it is to look like a pastor and a church. Pastors, shepherds, and sheep. You are to be bound together in such a way. See, some of you say to me, Pastor Jeremy, over the seven, last seven, eight years, your preaching has gotten so much better. And I say, maybe it's your listening that has gotten better. But I also know this, maybe it's just love. Maybe it's just love. I love you. 